Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper, and I'm joined, as always, by my incredible friends and co-hosts, Hannah Abrams and Tony Brew. It is so good to see you both. How is it going? It's going great for me. It's great to see you guys. Spring is in the air. We were hanging out in our garden this evening. It was beautiful. How y'all have been enjoying the weather? For me, it's just pollen season. So my, <laughs> sneezes and my, coughs. And my garden eyes. and my deck are just pure yellow. <laughs> yeah, this has been the first week that it's been above seventy degrees outside in Boston. So I am living it up. <laughs> Enjoy it while it lasts. Soon it's going to be ninety-five. Indeed, indeed. Well, Tony, what's our topic for discussion today? All right. Well, pretty early on in medical school, I was told. And I suspect you guys were told that it takes weeks for the radiographic infiltrate to resolve after a bout of pneumonia. And it was kind of this sort of statement I hear and accepted without question. I mean, I think most of everything I heard in medical school, I I accepted without question. But more recently, I began to wonder, like, what was actually in that infiltrate at week two or four or six? Because the patient was getting better, but like, why wasn't the x-ray getting better? And as I researched the answer, I came across a cellular process that had previously been totally unknown to me, and I thought it was really fascinating, and so I wanted to share it here with all of you. I'm excited for this one. I feel like my intern year was defined by multifocal pneumonia, likely COVID-19 in in x-ray reads, honestly. But one of the things that was like bedeviling about it was that so often the radiographic findings would be out of proportion to the hypoxemia yeah. in both directions. And so I kind of internalized that as like, oh, yeah, maybe some people are later in their course or maybe some people are having a different type of inflammation. And, you know, I knew that it takes weeks for, in low bar pneumonia, a chest x-ray to return to normal. So I imagine that there's maybe some contribution of what the organism is. Is that true? Yeah, there is. And, and you know, this idea that sometimes you'll have a patient with, say, COVID, for example, who has a, a COVID-related pneumonia and they get readmitted and you're looking at the CT often in this case and you're like, wait a minute, is this like a new pneumonia? Is this the continuation of the old pneumonia? It's often a debate that I think we have as uh, inpatient treating providers. But more generally, it's I think true that the organism does matter in terms of how quickly these infiltrates resolve. So one example is offered in this study from Thorax in 1984. And they looked at different organisms and they sort of examined how quickly the infiltrates resolved on chest x-ray. And they found that the resolution was fastest with mycoplasma pneumonia, your classic quote-unquote walking pneumonia, psittacosis, and then a non-bacteremic pneumococcal pneumonia cleared at sort of an intermediate rate. And then Legionella and a pneumococcal pneumonia that was bacteremic, they had the slowest period of resolution. And what's amazing is that at 12 weeks, so three months, just under half of patients with Legionella pneumonia still had an infiltrate. Like in some cases, it really takes a long time to go away. That certainly tracks with how bad Legionella can be, <laughs> you know, yeah. sort of just intuitively how severe it can get. And also, you know, we, we, we treat it, you know, for longer courses um, with, you know, with antibiotics and other kinds of pneumonia often. But, you know, before we tackle these, you know, sort of the later stages of pneumonia, can you remind us what is actually in the infiltrate that we're seeing radiographically? In the early pneumonia? Yeah, early on. Yeah, so the early stages, you've got neutrophils that are drawn to the alveoli basically to attend to those invading bacteria. And this happens at the behest of cytokines, including things like IL-8. And the result is a chest x-ray infiltrate that contains these neutrophils, and they're sort of engulfing the bacteria. 
And then there is also attendant edema and fibrin and red blood cells and desquamated epithelial cells. So like if you think about it in general, this is your you know inflammatory infiltrate. Also known as, I guess, pus, right? Yeah, I think we could fairly call this just pus. Yes. All right. So how long are we at this phase of just it's pus in the lungs? These are all neutrophils. So this is what you see over the first kind of one to four days of a bacterial pneumonia. And I'll be honest, the fact that we see this inflammatory infiltrate early on with the sort of the neutrophils being a, a sort of key component, it helps explain at least in part why corticosteroids might help in severe cases, right? Because it's often that over-exuberant inflammatory response that leads to severe illness and steroids can sort of help dampen that to some extent. Although that is certainly controversial um, and continues it, to it be. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it absolutely does. And you know, the more severe maybe, the more likely that the steroids might help because that's indicative potentially of a more like severe inflammatory response. Though, again, we could debate that maybe on an, another episode. Or seven. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, we do use them in ARDS, right? I mean, you know, right. like we're uh, – which is often caused by infectious pneumonia. But okay. So we've got that sort of early phase of that for those first four days of pneumonia down with that sort of exuberant inflammatory infiltrate. What happens next? Yeah. So around day five, the bacteria have basically been removed and neutrophils are no longer the main immune cell because they don't need to attend to the bacteria anymore. But we still see that infiltrate on chest x-ray. And if you look at some of the early studies from like the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, they suggest that consolidations can remain for up to 68 weeks, right? Even in sort of just your garden variety pneumococcal pneumonia. And as I mentioned earlier, depending on the organism, you might even see continuation of this infiltrate for periods even longer than eight weeks. So just to summarize, days one through four, there's pus in the lungs. As early as day five, the bacteria that caused the pneumonia and the infiltrate are probably gone based on what we've seen. I'm guessing these are kind of pathologic samples that we've taken over time. Is that where most of this data comes from? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing that we could debate for seven episodes would be antibiotic <laughs> course lengths. But I feel like day five, I typically feel pretty solid in kind of these uncomplicated community acquired pneumonias that you described. So is the fact that the bacteria are gone pathologically and the neutrophils are gone and whatever else is left is there, is that why we can stop the antibiotics before the infiltrate resolves? I think it's at least one of the reasons. It, there's probably many reasons. But uh, you know, the reality is our body's immune response ad really addresses the bacteria that are present in the lung you know, pretty well. And then uh, the antibiotics that we're giving are undoubtedly accelerating that process. And so if you, if you look back a few decades, you know, we learned that bacteria very, very quickly disappear from the sputum once appropriate antibiotics are administered. And, and this happens within just a couple of days. And to your point, Hannah, this is really part of the reason for short duration regimens in pneumonia, right? If the bacteria are quickly killed and the pneumonia and the alveoli are quickly sterilized, longer courses really aren't required. And sort of to kind of highlight this point, you know, there's a study from 1970 where they gave either a single intramuscular dose of long-acting penicillin or a single day's therapy of oral penicillin, and they compared that with the sort of standard oral or injected therapies, right? So single dose of penicillin versus your usual dose. And they were doing this for the treatment of low bar pneumonia. And it turns out that those who got just the one dose 
did just as well as those who got the longer courses. And you know, does this prove that you can just give one dose? No, but it kind of helps to demonstrate this idea that we actually sterilize the lung pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, over time, right? Like just shorter and shorter and shorter antibiotic courses. The football scores get <laughs> lower and lower and lower. Although, you know, certainly we're not advocating for one day antibiotic courses just yet, right, Tony? No, no, I, I, I would not advocate that we start to sort of give one dose of IM penicillin and call it a day. But it is intriguing nonetheless. And it's worth saying that like this study was from 1970 and I don't see any studies that have attempted to replicate it since. I think people are pretty comfortable with like three to five days being sort of the lower end of acceptable. But there's one other interesting observation that kind of follows from this idea of sort of rapid bacterial killing. And it's that this rapid bacterial killing also leads to a reduction in sort of the exogenous pyrogens, right? Like things like LPS. And this may also explain the equally swift resolution of fever in pneumonia once you start therapy. I mean, the fever typically resolves at day two or three. And again, the kind of point of this episode is that infiltrate is still going to be there weeks and weeks and weeks after that clinical stability has been uh, achieved. And so what is going on in those weeks and weeks sort of after we have reached clinical stability where we have this infiltrate, but the bacteria and the neutrophils are gone? So what is actually there? Yeah. So the main cell early on, again, is neutrophil or say the main inflammatory cell. During this period of recovery after sort of day four or five, the main cell is the macrophage. The lovely, lovely macrophage. Interesting. So what are these you know, macrophages doing? Like the bacteria are gone, so there really isn't infection to control. Like is it, is it just mop-up duty? Yeah, so they are in short doing a mop-up duty, yes. The actual term for this is epherocytosis. Although I'm going to actually ask the two of you, like I've never heard another human being pronounce this word. So I said epherocytosis, but I don't know, maybe it's epherocytosis. What, what do you, how should we define the uh, pronunciation of this word for the rest, the remainder of the podcast? Oh, I learned a new word tonight, Tony. I learned a new word. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Ephero, ephero? What do you prefer? I fear I don't know this. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go with epherocytosis. And if someone is an expert in the field, they can uh, sort of make a comment. But this is a cellular process, again, I had never heard of before I started reading about chest X-ray resolution. And so everocytosis is the removal of apoptotic bodies, again, by these macrophages. And some of the apoptotic bodies might include neutrophils that have the engulfed bacteria. So in essence, um, the immune system kind of goes nuts appropriately over the first sort of one to four days, right? They're going in there and they're going crazy, taking care of the bacteria. And the neutrophils and the cytokines, they create an enormous immune response. And this leads to the intended outcome of bacterial killing. But as a result of this, and unintended, is also tissue injury. And this mess needs to be cleaned up. And the macrophages basically spend weeks and weeks cleaning up a mess that neutrophils created in just a few short days. And, you know, Avi, you're a parent... When I kind of thought about this, it sounded very much like the mess that is created by my children. Like it can take a whirlwind of just like 10 to 15 minutes. And then I'm cleaning that room for many, many hours. I feel like I am yes. constantly undergoing epherocytosis in my own home. I've never commiserated with an alveolar macrophage before, but I'm I mean, as a pulmonologist, <laughs> you're telling me you've never commiserated with an alveolar macrophage? <laughs> 
I've respected them and valued them and been grateful for their function. But, um, uh, but no, I mean, yeah, this is exactly 15 minutes and an yeah. hour of cleanup. Certainly. From esteemed colleagues now to a sympathetic friend. <laughs> I love this journey for you, Bobby. Um, okay, so how do these macrophages know what to remove? from sort of all of this junk that has been strewn everywhere. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want them to remove the good stuff, right? You know, what's amazing is the apoptetic cells, they increase the exposure of phosphatidylserine. And this, when it's sort of exposed on the surface of these apoptotic bodies, it's recognized by the macrophages as a kind of eat me signal, right? Come destroy me, get me out of here. And if if it's going well, efferocytosis prevents secondary necrosis and the re- can sort of continued release of pro-inflammatory molecules from these apoptotic bodies. So, you know, we want that early inflammatory response, but once we've sterilized the lung and the bacteria are gone, we really need to ratchet things back. And so unsurprisingly, um, the more effective efferocytosis is, the sort of more symptomatic recovery you achieve. So there are actually a number of things that affect efferocytosis. Um, smoking, for just one example, impairs it. Um, and so unsurprisingly, smoking leads to a sort of prolonged recovery after a bacterial pneumonia. Is there anything that makes it better or faster? Yeah, so quitting smoking. Um, but beyond that, there's also some data that glucocorticoids and, if you can believe it, statins even augment efferocytosis. And what's cool is your statins have actually been tested as an adjunctive therapy uh, for the treatment of CAP with no benefit seen. But when you look at the studies, they typically are giving the statins early on, like over the first four days, for their quote-unquote anti-inflammatory activities. I am not aware of any trials where they've looked at statins for a longer period of time and sort of this tail end to see you know, does the resolution of the chest extra get better? And that kind of doesn't surprise me because you know, the, if someone's feeling better at two weeks, does it really matter if their chest x-ray is resolved at, you know, five weeks versus eight weeks? So it's not necessarily a clinically or patient-centered outcome. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Why not? might not be studied because patients are getting better anyway. But this seems like something that maybe like bacteria might try to take advantage of or disrupt, you know, to sort of try to win the war against us. Right. They cause the infection and we've got the neutrophils and the macrophages and then the bacteria are like, well, I can one-up you and I will sort of see your efferocytosis and you know double down with something else. So yes, there are many bacteria have, that have tried to either circumvent or take advantage of this process. And Klebsiella pneumonia is one example. So it actually has been found to impede efferocytosis by preventing that phosphatidylserine from being expressed on the surface of the apoptotic neutrophils. And so it kind of like blunts that that response. And then there are a whole host of other organisms, including Salmonella, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and Legionella, again, that inhibit apoptosis itself. And that then limits the ability for macrophages to cont- uh, to engage in efferocytosis. And I, and I kind of wonder, specifically, Legionella's ability to do this is one of the reasons why that infiltrate persists for what appears to be a longer period of time compared to some other causes of bacterial pneumonia. Now, as I was thinking about all this, I was realizing that, Avi, you you probably think in these terms as you see patients with sort of chronic infiltrate. So does this idea ever come up as you're talking with colleagues or, or teaching fellows in other conditions where you think this might be playing a role? 
Well, you know, I had, like I said, I had learned a new word tonight, so I've never heard of you know aphrocytosis. Um, but certainly, like alveolar macrophages, like come up all the time and um, dysfunction, all, lots of different you know airway based and parenchymal lung disease. So it's not surprising that this process seems to be sort of a a, a central um, a central process in 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 lung healing. And it definitely has been shown that for some of the conditions where you have chronic infiltrates that just really recalcitrant and, and aren't going away, things like IPF or cystic fibrosis, um, that ephrocytosis has been deemed incomplete or not fully effective in, in some of those cases. And to what extent that's playing a role, I, I think remains not completely known, but at least some role is probably there. Yeah. Isn't histoplasma like the ultimate trigger of the alveolar macrophage, like that it can be found inside the macrophages? I wonder, because it's like such a subacute process if it's really affecting that part of the healing process. That wouldn't surprise me at all because, you know, whenever I think about, you know, tuberculosis, those endemic mycoses often act in a similar manner. I didn't see anything specifically about histo, but it would not surprise me in the least if it somehow found a way to kind of get around these alveolar macrophages doing their job, being the parents of the lung. Those granulomas. <laughs> I know. It really, all of the trickiest lung infections really really seem to focus on the macrophages and not so much the neutrophils. The other thing this did remind me of is like in our first 10 episodes, we talked about why septic pulmonary emboli cause a radiographic infiltrate when sort of regular pulmonary emboli or bland pulmonary emboli don't. And one of the papers in that we referenced in that episode talked about the radi- like gram-positive septic pulmonary emboli having this much bigger appearance than gram-negative. It doesn't fit with the Legionella thing, but I do wonder if also really severe pneumococcal infections, if it's all about just like what is the inflammatory reaction that we're creating. Yeah, I mean, pneumococcus is is one of the classic infections where the inflammatory response is profound, you know, which is why you know, giving it for pneumococcal meningitis is important. There's a potential signal that of the pneumonias where steroids have a benefit, it's the pneumococcal pneumonia. So pneumococcus is not unique but it is an extremely inflammatory bacterium. And I, that certainly plays a role. To what extent it plays a role in, again, the continuation of the infiltrate, it's not clear. All I know is everyone should thank their alveolar macrophages. So. <laughs> Done. And their parents. <laughs> and their parents, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, Joni, do you have any other take-home points for us? Yes. So uh, the first is that the initial infiltrate, right, the one we see over those first four days, is really pus, right? It's neutrophils, bacteria, and, you know, a few other things, but it's really just neutrophils and bacteria. That's like the key components of that early infiltrate when the patient is the sickest. That later infiltrate, the one that we see for weeks and weeks and weeks, even after the patient has stabilized clinically, is largely make, made up of macrophages engaging in ephrocytosis. And that's the cleaning up of all that apoptotic debris that the neutrophils generated doing the hard work of sterilizing the lung and getting things better. Incredible. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. 
As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. Physicians and other healthcare professionals can earn CME and MOC credits from VCU Health just for listening to this episode. So for more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org forward slash Curious Clinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Thank you.